Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The Cows. Justice. Gusty Renegade. In for another program. Hopefully to share constructive information on the system of racism. Thank you all so much for taking some time to uh, check out the program. Today's date, Monday, September 10th, 2012, so I have been told. We will be back later in the week. Uh, just uh, check the program page. Uh, I'm pretty sure we will be back before this uh, Friday when we do our study session on the Turner Diaries. Uh, also, the compensatory call-in on this coming Saturday, but we definitely should have programs before then. Just check the Facebook page, the main talk show page, and you will see the upcoming broadcast for the week. Uh, anything before this coming Friday afternoon Turner Diaries looking forward to hearing from folks for then our guest for today's program suggestion from Pumpkin uh, she was checking out different writers and I uh, know that we have spent quite a bit of time uh, dealing with literature and racism on the program she thought it would be cool if we could get our guest for today's program uh, to spend some time get some of her views uh, contacted her and she was willing to speak with us for a bit. Uh, she has written a ton of books. I think the, the term prolific writer uh, is used often. It is apropos uh, in this case, uh, fiction and nonfiction. Uh, the work that we'll talk about will be dealing more so with her fiction uh, that deals with racism in Australia, treatment, historic treatment of the so called. Uh, indigenous population, aboriginals, non-white people, uh, things that happen to them, mistreatment that is not talked about and or fabricated, swept away, very similar to things that have happened uh, here in the States. Uh, one of her more recent books, Sarah Thornhill, uh, part of a quote-unquote colonial trilogy, a uh, real pleasure to have her visiting with us live from Australia, author Kate Grenville. Uh, Miss Grenville, are you with us? Yes, uh, you, you, you're, um, the, the audio is drifting in and out a little bit, but so far it's manageable. It's really good to be with you. Outstanding. Okay. If the audio, if it uh, continues to be a problem or if you have difficulty hearing, definitely let us know. We'll see if we can get the line cleared up. Um, for listeners, this might be their first time uh, hearing about your work. If you could give us a little bit of background information, anything that would be helpful with regards to your work, listeners knowing about you, uh, that would be a great way to start off. Yes, for my work, um, 
I suppose I suppose I have always been interested in um, what you might call people who are uh, kind of not main, not in the mainstream of society. My first book, for example, was called Bearded Ladies, and it was um, it was a feminist book. I wrote that back in 1984. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, and I then wrote about about what I saw as the uh, marginalised position of women. But when, about uh, 10 years ago, I became interested in a different aspect of, uh, of things, which is that um, my, my background is that my ancestors, my forebears here in Australia, were convicts. They were, uh, my great-great-great-grandfather was a convict, was a, he was a bargeman on the Thames in London. And in 1806, he tried unsuccessfully to steal some timber and was transported to Australia as a convict. And Australia was then a, a fairly new uh, penal colony. That's what it had been set up for by the British. And my mother told us the stories about our ancestor, whose name was Solomon Wiseman. And the story always ended the same way. Solomon Wiseman got his freedom, she would say, um, and then he went up the Hawkesbury River, which is a river just outside of Sydney, and there he took up land and proceeded to make a lot of money and died a wealthy man. Now, that phrase, took up land, kind of um, stuck in my mind because I thought, well, I knew enough by then to know that the land that Solomon Wiseman had, in inverted commas, taken up was in fact already thoroughly owned and inhabited by other people, that is the Daruk people, the Aboriginal people of Australia. And so I began to think, shamefully late in my life, about what that phrase, what might lie behind that phrase, took up land, such an innocent little phrase. So that led me into writing three books about um, the early colony of uh, New South Wales or Sydney and to explore what had happened between black and white on that um, very early frontier. So The Secret River is a story based uh, in some respects quite closely on my convict ancestor um, and that book actually ends in a very dark place with a massacre of um, local Aboriginal people by white settlers uh, which we now know was a very common uh, thing to happen. Um, the second book was called the was called the, the Lieutenant, and it's about a <clears throat> one of uh, one of His Majesty's soldiers who came out to guard the convicts, and who made a different choice. Instead of regarding the local Aborig Aboriginal people as enemies or a strange other species, he um, befriended them and learned their language. And he's left behind a notebook in which he records conversations between himself and a young Aboriginal girl. That seemed to me to say, look, uh, there was another choice that those settlers could have made, and this particular man made it. It's based on a real man. And Sarah Thornhill is about what happens to the succeeding generations, not the first generation that actually violently takes the land, but the generations are beyond that, including my own, in fact, who then have to deal with that extremely toxic legacy, and they are in fact the basis for your current comfortable life. That's that's where Sarah Thornhill began, and that's that was really my own situation. How can I justify 
are what I am and where I am at this point in history. Huh. Fascinating. We here in the States, or at least the folks listening who are in the States, uh, we talked about this sort of literature before, um, particularly white people uh, who write books. Uh, for folks in the States, it would be writing books about slavery, uh, maybe Australia, New Zealand, other parts of the world. It would be, quote unquote, colonialism. But I think we're pretty much talking about the same thing where uh, white people went to an area with a lot of non-white people, mistreated them, took their land, enslaved them. I think we're pretty much talking about the same thing in a lot of these books. And I'm always curious. It seems like there's so much literature that fits this genre. I call this this genre plantation fiction because uh, I started seeing that there's so much of it. Uh, books like The Help uh, that was in the States. Uh, property. There are just tons of them, more of them coming out all the time. And I've been trying to figure out exactly what is the appeal. Some of these books are immensely popular here in the States and around the world. Just this genre seems to be very popular. And I've been trying to figure out why white people, number one, why white people write books like this uh, about older incidents of racism, mistreatment of non-white people. Like, what are they hoping to accomplish by writing about all this? For you, what, it, what are you hoping to accomplish when you write something like Sarah Thornhill? Yes, I can only speak for myself. I've, I've read a couple of those books you mentioned, and um, they seem to me... A little bit different, yeah. Let me let me first of all say what I what I thought I was doing, what I think I was doing. At the age of you know, in middle age, at, at fifty, I suddenly realised that I had grown up in an Australia that I had been given a very sanitised history of. I had been, you know, when I when I went to school as a, as a child, of course we learned about the Aboriginal people, but we also learned without quite being told that they had some simply disappeared. Uh, you know, they were very susceptible to smallpox and other, you know, white European diseases. Um, and the impression was given, without it ever being spelled out, I think, that um, sadly, but inevitably, they had more or less died out. And like many of Austra Australians of my generation, I had accepted that without really thinking it through. And it wasn't until a few Australian historians beginning in, I suppose, the early 70s, began to uncover the falsity of that and began to uncover the truth of massacres, poisonings, you know, the atrocities that, are now, that we now know about, which are really undeniable, uh, that I began to realise that the, the picture of myself in my country that I had had um, was based on a lie, basically. So, and when I went to do the research about Solomon Wiseman, and it, that research took me then, I don't, I could never find out what my own ancestor did on the frontier. He might have been one of the, you know, good settlers. He might not have been. There seems to be absolutely no record of that. So, looking for him took me into the larger question of what happened in general and that that was a horrifying education i can remember sitting in the library with tears in my eyes and a kind of a sick feeling i actually thought i was going to throw up reading about the history of the place that i called home and realizing how brutally it had been stolen really from its original um, owners 
So uh, for a white person, the question is then what you do with that. Um, and my own, my own, I mean, obviously guilt is a huge factor in it. And also um, the wish to, to do something positive. Uh, so I, I, I've taken two, two sort of directions. Um, one is to try and, um, in whatever way I can, uh, you know, address problems that contemporary Aboriginal people have. There's not very much I can do, but I, there's a thing called the Indigenous Literacy Project, of which I'm an ambassador. But it seemed to me that the more important part there is to tell the story, let it be known, and let it be known in all its moral ambiguity. Um, I wanted to tell the story of um, William Thornhill, who's the who's the settler who commits atrocities in the Secret River. I wanted to portray him not as a monster, not as an evil man, but just as a very ordinary man with you know no education and, and no nothing in his experience that equipped him for dealing with what he was presented with here in Australia. Because it seemed to me that if you told a story about monsters who went out and killed people and stole their land, most of us could say, oh, well, that's all right. I'm not a monster. That's okay. That lets me off the hook. I didn't want to be let off the hook, if you know what I mean. So I wanted to draw uh, Thornhill as an ordinary person, uh, like any of us, part good, part bad, part selfish, part thought, you know, thoughtful. Uh, part ignorant, but also part curious. So what I wanted to say was, what would any of us have done in his situation? There is no simple moral answer here. And if we try and make it simple by portraying one set of people as baddies, uh, we're really, it's a cop-out. It's brushing it all under the carpet all over again. So my hope really was to um, tell, I suppose, basically other white people about this stuff that I had just learned about. And I get a lot of mail from readers who thank me for doing that. Um, I also hoped that it would... Um, it's my way of saying sorry. I suppose in, you know, in, in brief words, that's why I wrote the books. It, the, only, the only coin that I have to repay that debt is to tell the stories as truthfully as I can. Hmm. That is interesting. Um, so many aspects. I'm going to make sure one of the more fascinating things I don't want to forget. You did. You you said when you were giving your reply uh, about one of your ancestors being the so one of the so-called good settlers. Uh, and I just put a highlight there. I don't know what would classify one as a quote unquote good settler. Uh, I don't know what you would have to do that would yes. make you a good Interesting. settler. When I <laughs> it was a pretty loose phrase. I suppose by that I mean that when I did the research, I discovered that those... Uh, I, I had always thought of the settlers as a kind of block of people who all kind of thought the same and acted the same. When I did the research, I discovered that at one end of the spectrum, there were people whose uh, humanity you have to doubt because of the things that they did, t terrible things. Um, but at the other extreme, there were people who could see the wrong that was happening. I suppose that's what I mean by good settlers. I mean, there is nothing, there is no good about the colonial situation. As soon as you have a colonial situation, there really is no good in it. But there are people within that 
who can see clearly, who, who are not kidding themselves for their own selfish reasons, that it's all okay. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of the early settlers in Australia said, oh, the Aboriginal people are just nomads. They don't dig the soil or build fences or houses or any of that, which is perfectly true. They didn't need to. They were such clever managers of the land. They didn't need to actually break their backs digging it up. But that allowed some of the white people to think, in that case, it's okay. They're not using the land. It's empty land, terra nullius, as they called it, uh, empty, empty land, land with no one in it. Therefore, it's okay for us to move in. So some of them rationalised it that way. But the ones that I very loosely spoke of as good settlers are the ones who recognised exactly what they were doing and tried, within the limitations of their own situation, I suppose, to act honourably. Um, in retrospect, I mean, there was no way of acting honourably, but they did their best. For example, there was a settler in South Australia who was a Quaker, in fact, and um, he went out and, you know, took up, in inverted commas, land and farmed it. And every year he would send some money to the British government, who was still the government of Australia back then, uh, with a letter saying, I regard this land as belonging to the Aboriginal people. I regard myself as more or less a tenant on this land. I'm sending you this money because this is what I consider would be a fair rent for this land. And I want you to make sure that it gets back to the Aboriginal people. I mean, it's laughably naive, but at least this was a man who was not kidding himself. And he was, as I say, within his own limitations, doing doing, uh, uh, yeah, within his limitations, he was doing his best, I suppose. But as I say, once you have a system that is inherently evil, Everybody within it is tainted. Hmm. Hmm. That's your response, and I appreciate that. Uh, we appreciate honest, uh, honest responses from white people on the program. But as a non-white person hearing that, and I hope listeners uh, have been paying attention, there are a lot of contradictions in the responses that you've given uh, when you talk about that you, when you have a system that is inherently fundamentally evil uh, that is about mistreating killing large numbers of people which is what the system of racism is about which you're writing about the quote-unquote colonial history of Australia uh, I see this consistently where white people will acknowledge that and then they will take the next five to ten minutes to make an effort to try to find some white people who were quote-unquote good white people these were good slave owners these were good settlers uh, and then they will come back and say, well, it's it's kind of impossible to be a quote-unquote good settler. It's kind of impossible to be a, a quote-unquote good slave master under these conditions. But people did as much as they could. And when I hear all that and I hear the, the contradictions in the response, and then in the context of this dialogue where this is about what I'm, I'm terming uh, plantation fiction, these novels that are about, as I said, slavery, colonialism, and I'm still just trying to find what is what is the the end point of all this. So we write all this. Is this are any of these books? Are they going to help non-white people right now who've been the victims of this long-running system of injustice and evil? Are these books going to help them? Are these books going to correct any of the massive problems that they are facing as a result of all this that's happened over so many years? And the end result with 
with all of these books ends up being invariably, no, nothing's really going to happen directly for the non-white people as a result of these books, but we keep ending up with more and more of this plantation fiction to, I, I don't know, are we looking for a good white person? Are we looking to educate other white people? Even if I go that angle, like, okay, you, you do research, and there's a lot of people who have uh, commended you for the research that you've done and, and trying to be accurate with the stories that you tell. Are white people supposed to change their behavior as a result of getting this accurate information about the history of racism in Australia? Yeah, look, I take your point. I, 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 I think you're right. And one of the things I'm uncomfortable with about the some of the plantation literature that I've read is that it does seem to me, um, you know, there's a danger in what I do and in, in a certainly, I think, in those other books, which is that there's a point where you say, OK, we've acknowledged the horrors of the past and we've said we're sorry, as our Prime Minister, you know, made, a, made an apology on behalf of all of us in Parliament five years ago. Um, now can we move on? We've settled that. Now can we move on? I think there is this danger in all this, in this whole genre of writing that it's kind of like for a moment you acknowledge it and then you have the kind of warm inner glow of the high moral ground, really, of saying, okay, I, I've admitted how, how appalling the past is and that my own life has built on that, so now I don't have to think about it anymore. So I, 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 I see that danger, and I think you're correct about that. I, I do agree. But as a white person, the dilemma is actually what, what can you do? Um, one of the things, and, and the answer is probably not a great deal. I mean, this is a system. It, is, it remains a system in Australia, uh, and no doubt in your country too, where racism is... Um, it's kind of still embedded in the system in many ways. So I don't know what you do, but I can only say that, um, um, you know, there are many Aboriginal communities, particularly remote ones out beyond the cities, that are quite fairly dysfunctional. And it's very easy for white people to go in there and say, uh, to make moral judgments, to say, oh, these people are this, that, and the other. You know, why don't they X, Y, and Z? Why don't they get a job? Why don't they build a nice house? Why don't they sweep up their yard? It's very easy for people to come in without understanding that there is a history behind what they're looking at, and that history is a history of of um, you know oppression, dispossession, grief of a kind that we white people have not had to experience. Once you understand a tiny little bit about that past, nothing may change immediately, but to become less judgmental and to say, okay, what we see today is the end point of a very, very black history. Very dark history. Um, so when we approach the, you know, if you like, situation today, let's recognise that it didn't come out of any shortcomings or any kind of inherent, you know, um, problems with these people. It came out of their history, just as our attitudes and the way we live came out of our history. 
so to be less judgmental. I mean, in Australia, the problem is that nobody's listening. Everybody thinks they have a solution to, you know, the Aboriginal problem. We need to do this, we need to do that. And most, many of those solutions are based on what we, what we want. So, you know, the idea of private ownership, um, individual competitiveness, all those things. We want people to get a job and a house of their own and be landowners and all that. That is entirely foreign to the Aboriginal culture, which is a culture of co cooperation, collaboration. You do everything together. You are a family. You are a community. You don't strive to, to beat your, your neighbour or to own something individually. So there's this constant thing of imposing whitefella um, ideals on a culture that it's completely inappropriate uh, to impose them on. Um, in other words, it's a question of not listening. I think in Australia, I don't, I don't know about your country, but in Australia we are still at, at, the, at the situation where white people are just not listening not giving, not paying black people the respect of listening and saying, well, you, you do the talking for a while. Hmm. That's pretty, uh, I think that's pretty standard. Uh, even here, white people are not really interested in listening to non-white people, particularly if the non-white people are going to be talking about racism and how white people have mistreated them. That's not very popular anywhere on the planet right now, I don't think. Um, for any of uh, our listeners we have about five minutes left uh, with Miss Grenville uh, if y'all have any questions especially Pumpkin since you recommended if y'all have any questions you should get your hand up immediately uh, if you're on the 760 line uh, press star 6 that number 760-569-7676 and the code is 564 nine four three pound again press star six if you have a question folks on the talk shoe line can press star eight um i'm just i'm trying to make i'm still trying to work through this um just i, I feel like in the system of racism uh the white people who practice racism they don't waste time and they do not use time and energy for no reason they tend to do things with an objective that relates to the maintenance of the system of racism and with these books and it's an international thing as i've been saying it's not just australia or the states it seems all over the world these books seem to be very popular uh white people writing about older forms of racism uh colonialism uh, for you you said that growing up you had a very sanitized version of australia and you started doing research to understand how you have benefited so much being a white person, how that came about and trying to get more information about the history of racism in Australia. That's what kind of started you on this path. Is that correct? Mm, that's pretty, that's pretty much it. Yep. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm just, how many, how many of, how many of your books have actually dealt with some aspect of historical racism or colonialism in Australia? Uh, I suppose maybe four of the eight novels, the three in the Colonial Trilogy, and I, I wrote a book in 1988, which partly, which was, I can see now looking back, the beginning of me thinking, well, wait a minute, it was a book about, it's called Joan Makes History, and it was a rewriting of Australian history as it, to foreground the women, 
But in the course of that, I thought, well, hang on, the other, one of the other big lots of people that are left out of every story about the Australian history, this was the year of the Australian Bicentennial, I might add, when, you know, the whole Whitefellow project was being glorified. It occurred to me um, that the other big set of people that were being completely left out of this were the original Australians. And so I wrote, I think, a couple of chapters uh, doing something I would not do now, which is to tell... Uh, to tell an Indigenous story. Uh, I now consider that kind of disrespectful. My own choice as a writer is uh, to tell the white story. That's my story, and I'm, I'm in a position to tell that and to tell that as truthful as I can, but not to try and uh, second-guess, not to think that I understand a world that is not my own. So I guess four out of the eight. Okay. Um, hmm. That's quite a bit. It seems like a high percentage uh, to me. Just my view. I think it would be very helpful and it would be kind of on the same path. If you're serious, if you're a white person, you're serious about working against racism and using your skills as a writer to work against racism. I think it would be phenomenal and uh, not just for folks in Australia, but around the world. If you as a white person, uh, if you could just write honestly about white people and the way that you see white people practicing racism right now uh in any area that you can think of uh with regards to uh literature them not being willing to listen uh them just doing a lot of blaming of non-white people in australia just different ways that you see white people practicing racism right now uh in my view i think that would be a lot more helpful informative than Focusing on the racism, white supremacy of 100, 150 years ago, uh, just because, number one, I think there are a lot of those books already. I'm even I'm even incredulous when some white people say that white people are ignorant about the racism that happened 100, 200 years ago. I'm a little incredulous of that. But even if that's true, let's let's say it's true that a lot of white people don't know about that. Uh, I think. The bigger problem is that a lot of non-white people are very confused about the fact that there's a lot of racism going on right now that they don't understand. So that would be my suggestion, maybe, if you if you could be, and even yourself, some self-examination, ways that you yourself practice racism, white supremacy, and don't know it. I think as much honesty as we could bear about things that are contemporary, that would be phenomenal. I would love to see that. What do you What do you think about that? Look, I think you're absolutely right. I think you're absolutely right. I have a lot of conversations with, with people where they say, I'm not a racist, but... And you know that the next thing they're going to say is, in fact, something racist. And you're absolutely right about looking into, one, looking into one's own heart and saying, well, OK, I, I grew up in a racist world. So that a lot of that has been imprinted. It's my job now to recognise it, to pull it out of that, that dark little cupboard where it belongs. I think you're absolutely right. Um... The thing about the past, I think that's interesting. Um, you know, it's a, it's a balancing act between um, giving people a pill that's got too much sugar on the coating and offering people a pill that they just won't take at all. And one of the things about writing about the past is that I have a feeling, or at least it's my hope, that in a way you can, you can get past people's guards and you can perhaps get them to understand something at a human level at an empathic level, identifying with people. Um, and because it's in the past, they're sort of more perhaps prepared to read about it. But I also completely agree with you that it, is, it can also be a, well, that's all right, that was yesterday, we're okay today. 
I think you're absolutely right. One of the thing, one of the fabulous things that's happening in Australia at the moment, of course, is that uh, Aboriginal writers themselves are now talking about all this stuff and writing wonderfully about it, both writing about the past from their, you know, telling their version of the colonial days, and also about the present. And that's an education for all of us, actually. Hmm. Now that I would be, if you know of some uh, Aboriginal Indigenous writers who are writing about these issues, writing about racism and and their thoughts on all this, that would be great. I would love to to read some of their material. We've had Dr. Ann Patel Gray on the program. Uh, I'm a fan of her work. Uh, but if there are other uh, non-white people who are writing, even if they're writing fiction, that would be great. I would love to to check out some of their material and even have them on the program if we can work it out. I think that would be great. What about I email you a, a little list of of the ones that I'm aware of. Oh, that would, that be good or? that would be fantastic. I'm sure some of our listeners would appreciate that too. Yeah. I mean, two, actually three leap to mind. Kim Scott, who writes fiction, Alexis Wright, who writes both fiction and non-fiction, and Melissa Lucas and young adult fiction, and they would, they would, yeah, that would be a terrific thing for your listeners, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm game. I, I would love it. I would love it if you, uh, and particularly if they're writing young adult uh, literature, that would a plus all the way around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you could shoot me an email, right. I would. Uh, I would definitely follow up on that and see if we could get all three of them uh, on the program. Good. Um, I'll, I'll do that. Yeah. Okay. I, before we get ready to sign, I don't see any hands, so I'm assuming listeners are all good with questions for today. I did well, want to pick. They're, sorry, they're either so horrified at what I've been saying or. I hope not. I, I hope they have been listening. Uh, you know, as, as a white, <laughs> you said as a white person. Oh, just the difficulty, the dilemma of knowing. You know, that's that. You know that that's what we live with. And you are absolutely right. That kind of a work in progress. You do one thing. You know, you write about the, the racist history, but you haven't finished there. You have to keep going. Mm, yeah, I, uh, I, especially for folks listening to the program, I would say, yeah, just keep going. Replace the system of racism with the system of justice. I will point out, though, uh, quickly from this is an article, uh, metro.co.uk, uh, where they were talking about Sarah Thornhill. Uh, this was just from a couple weeks ago. Uh, and they were saying uh, where they were asking you, do, do you get a backlash uh, with regards to your subject matter and talking about racism, and your your response was that a lot of white people said that they loved the book, but they didn't want to read to the end because they knew what was going to happen, and that was the massacre of these non-white people, the Aboriginals. Uh, so just putting that out again for listeners, I think the denial with regards to white people, I think that's going to be there regardless. Uh, you just keep moving forward doing the work as best you can uh, just in fact i would say you should expect that uh, from a lot of white people denial resistant total stonewall effort to not hear truth about racism white supremacy past present future um yeah cool did you have any any final thoughts you wanted to uh, get out before we say goodbye well, you know, that's quite an interesting one because those people who say to me, I, I, I knew what was coming and so I didn't want to go there, in a way, yeah, they are into, into denial. But in another way, what that tells you is that they actually know this history and 
in the moment that they think, "Uh uh-oh, I can see where this story's going, they have had to allow it into their brain, even for only a moment, and even if they then turn their back on it. I, you know, maybe it's a matter of just um, a lot of little tiny chinks in that terrible great edifice of kind of systematic and and unthought-out racism, people that are just unconscious of their racism. Just a tiny, a lot of, a lot of tiny little cracks and eventually someone will come along with a little tiny hammer and go tap and the whole thing will fall apart. That would be really good. Looking for a hammer, folks. Looking for a hammer. (laughs) Bring on that hammer. Exactly. Uh, Again, our guest uh, for the program, prolific author, Kate Grenville. You can check out her website to get more information about her books. Uh, If you want to check out the trilogy, it's kategrenville.com. KateGrenville.com. Uh, thank you so much. If you could send me that email with the uh, Indigenous Aboriginal writers, I will definitely follow up. If you uh, have time this week to shoot it to me, I would appreciate it. That's terrific. I'll certainly do that. Thank you very much for having me on the program. I really appreciate it. Pleasure was ours. Kate Grenville, live from Australia. Enjoy the rest of your, I guess for you, your Tuesday afternoon. Enjoy the rest of it. Or Tuesday morning. It's morning there. Tuesday morning for you. Thank you. Thank you. For sure. Take care. Good morning. Yep. Enjoy the rest of your day, Miss Grenville. Wow. Context of white supremacy. Oh, I didn't know. Were you still there? Did you have anything else to say? Yes. Yeah. You you did have something else to say, or or you are you good? Oh no, no! I'm sorry. You're breaking up a little bit. No, I think I've, I think I've, uh, I think I've said my piece. Okay, outstanding. Please enjoy the rest of your uh, your Tuesday, and uh, I will look forward to being in touch with you in the future. Hopefully, we can have you back on the program. Oh, I will think do. Thank you very much. For sure. Take care, Miss Greenville. Thanks. Thanks. Goodbye. Wow. The cows. Yes, ma'am. The cows. I think we had a little bit of a delay there. A little bit of a delay. Blame white people for that, too. Delay in the phone line. Context of white supremacy. Uh, Plantation literature. We have talked about this before. Lots of these books. The help. Property. Long, 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 long list. Uh, And it's all over the world. We were talking about this. Earlier this year, we had some listeners, they were sending me plantation fiction from Jamaica and wherever there's been white supremacy. Uh, it's, it's, I think, like nostalgia uh, to go back in time and ponder on and enjoy how the plantation ran 10, 20, 50, 100, 200 years ago. Lots of this stuff all over the world. And it sounds very similar, in my opinion. If you go back, if you... Hear the program that we did earlier this year with Valerie, uh, Valerie Jackson. She's a white uh, female. She authored Property. She also she was not on for the full program, but uh, oof, the time she was with us, where she talks about that book Property, how she has a character who is like the the nineteenth century version of Jerry Sandusky where he has young black male slaves on the plantation and he's going out molesting them. Uh, and these are like 
three, four, five, six year old black male children that this white racist is molesting in the book property. And then I think maybe 50 pages later in the book, and this is like page five, like this is very beginning of the book. This is the first thing that you run into. And then, uh, I think 50 pages later in this book property, uh, they have a scene where the white woman sexually molests her black female slave. Right. So yeah, that's not a book that was written by our guest for today's program, but the similar trend in my, in my opinion, I think the appeal of these books is that it gives white people an opportunity to enjoy relive uh, more overt system of racism, white supremacy that they enjoyed. Uh, it gives them an opportunity to include some randy sexual scenes, uh, the ones I told you about in Property. That's a big part of uh, Sarah Thornhill, the book that we were kind of talking about today with uh, our guest, uh, Miss Grenville, uh, where the white character, one of the main white characters in the book, she decides she's going to get married. The person that she's going to marry is not a white person. They have a white parent and a non-white parent. And her white, uh, the white females, family members are not pleased at all about her decision to marry this uh, non-white person, person that they don't accept as a white person. Uh, so it gives them an opportunity to, to, to have their, their fantasies uh, about raping, molesting, black people uh, I don't think any aspect of these books is about white people discontinuing the practice of racism uh, it's like a yearbook of white supremacy in my view that's what these are like all the good old days remember Jim used to flog him out back granddad used to tell us about that all the time I think that's I think that's the purpose that these books serve the whole genre of plantation fiction anyway we will take a quick commercial break be right back See if anyone has any thoughts. We don't have to do the full three hours uh, of the broadcast today. Quick commercial break. Be back. I have a, a quick thought, and then we'll see if anyone, any of our listeners, if they have anything they want to get in uh, once we are done with the commercial. The context of white supremacy. We will be right back. RacismDaily.com, your number one source for global news reports on race, racism, and overt actions of white supremacy. From Asia to the Americas to Europe to Australia to Africa, racism is not a thing of the past. It is our current reality. Be informed. Be globally informed. You should be the first to know. RacismDaily.com, RacismDaily.com, RacismDaily.com. Is racism hurting you? On issues of race, are you unable to speak, think, and act with clarity and confidence? Are you tired of laughing when nothing is funny, smiling when you are not happy, agreeing when you really disagree? Counterracism.com, you can learn specific strategies and techniques to counter the behaviors of the people who practice racism in all areas of activity. Using words correctly, following counter-racist logic, even counter-racist science projects designed to reveal what racism is, how it works, and how to counter it. The open source code writing format allows you to pick and choose from a variety of counter-racist suggestions so you can produce the code that works for you. 
Stop by counterracism.com today and help replace racism with justice. That's counter-racism.com. Do you need a one-stop shop for all of your multimedia needs? Triumphant Multimedia is a skilled team of professionals with a passion for great marketing and chic design. Our specialties include consulting, brand development, copywriting, and creative graphic design that's second to none. We also offer photography, photo retouching, videography, and video editing. At Triumphant Multimedia, our goal is to provide highly effective creative solutions built to suit any individual need or budget. Give us a call at 678-732-8067 or check us out online at TRIMultimedia.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome. This is Justice with the Cows Radio program. If you want to learn about, understand, and counter racism, white supremacy, be sure not to miss a cow's episode. We keep them jammed, packed with constructive information to sharpen your use of words to help eliminate the system of racism, white supremacy, ASAP. Also, to be able to invest in my counter-racist efforts, co-hosting the cow's radio program, please visit my blog, justdojusticetoday.blogspot.com. You're just saying just buckets and buckets of words. I got an uncle real crazy. My uncle B, 55 years old, hates white people, married to a white lady. And he's sitting around going, you know, these crackers ain't shit. Except for Susan. And he tried to explain the whole thing to me one day, say, yeah, 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 I got a white wife, I love her, she love me, that's all that matter. But I tell you this, if the revolution ever come, I'll kill her first. Just to show these crackers, I mean business. <laughs> motherfucker, cracker ass, motherfucker, cracker. Shit, cracker, motherfucker. Well, hey, hey, hi, honey. <laughs> motherfucker, cracker, I'll kill my cracker kids too. Hmm. <laughs> context of white supremacy I hope people are uh, paying attention to words not only good settlers that was uh, <sighs> trifling anyway not only good settlers but there was a lot of just the color of her vernacular in my view evidenced white people have spent a lot of hours refining their words so that all times the way that they speak the words that they use support the interest of white supremacy where she was saying a dark history and a black spot and fair this I mean at all times anytime white is associated with something attractive pleasant just something that you want something desirable and at the other end of the spectrum black darkness associated with something terrible something awful something that you don't want any contact with just the worst possible outcome must be associated with blackness darkness black people 
it was all throughout. She was only with us for 40 minutes, but it was beginning to end. Her, her vernacular, her speech evidenced the many years of, of work and precision around crafting a racist way of speaking, even a racist default way of communicating with words. Very stand out to me. Anywho, uh, speaking of standing out racism, uh, I was speaking about Serena Williams yesterday on the program. Uh, she won her 15th major championship third title, third major of the year. I think it was her fourth time winning the U.S. Open, all under racism, white supremacy. Keep that in context. Uh, and I've said consistently, I've been saying about the past two weeks, if Serena Williams was a white person, if she was a white woman, she would not just be the most popular female athlete in this area of the world. She would probably be the most popular white woman, hands down. I mean, I really cannot imagine how euphoric white people would be about Serena Williams if she was white. And I caught another glimpse of this. I saw uh, they were doing a quick interview where they were talking about her accomplishments and, you know, how much longer will she be uh, the best female tennis player in the world? How much how much longer is she going to play? And, you know, where does she rank amongst the greats? They were talking to a former white female tennis player, uh, Chris Everett. I don't know if folks out there who watch tennis or if you watched when she was playing. I'm no tennis fan, so I'm not a historian on what she did or what have you. I think they did say that she won quite a few majors. So apparently she used to be very good when she played. But she's a white woman. That's the thing you need to know more than anything else. (laughs) She is a white person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tennis great, but a white person tennis great so she's talking uh, giving her views about Serena Williams I don't know if it'll come through without the video but it should if you just pay attention I think you'll hear the names so you'll be able to pick out it's only two people talking so you should be able to easily decipher the white woman Chris Everett that's speaking just pay attention uh, to the way that she sounds in talking about Serena Williams Uh, Just come to your own conclusions. I think if you were seeing the video, so if you had more information to make an assessment, I think it would be even clearer. Uh, But I think it will come through even with just the audio. So we'll check out their interview and then be right back. This is Chris Everett. Non-white female. Chris Everett is a white woman. She's speaking to a non-white female about Serena Williams weekend triumph in New York. Welcome into Digital Serve. I'm Prim Sarifapata alongside six-time U.S. Open champ Chris Everett. Well, this was the first three-set match that we witnessed in the U.S. Open Women's Finals in 17 years. But in the end, it was Serena Williams hoisting up the trophy as she found a way to defeat Victoria Azarenka. Now, Chrissy, in terms of the overall quality of this match, how does this compare to years past, any other matches that you've seen? You know, I, I've watched for about 30 years U.S. Open Finals, and I remember some real hard-fought battles between Celis and Capriati and uh, Martina and Steffi Graf. So there have been some. I'm not going to say this is the best, but it certainly was a very high level, and the women hit the ball harder than we did in our uh, careers. But it was very, it was very exciting, and the fact that um, Serena Williams pulled it out at 5-3, I think, got really the crowd going, and Serena should know that everybody from New York was behind her, and everyone wanted to see a victory for her, especially because the last three years have been tough for her. Right. In terms of the X's and O's standpoint, what impressed you the most about Serena? 
Her first serve continues to impress me. I mean, it's the biggest serve we've ever seen in the history of women's tennis, not only in this era, but in any era. And just the ability to hit the big shot and serve the big serve on pressure points. I mean, it comes out. It came out at 5-3. And, and also just the cool way she held her calm and she was focused and she never got rattled. And we've seen a rattled Serena the last few years. So I think just her demeanor was different this year. And over the past really year and a half or so, we've seen Serena go through a roller coaster a uh, couple of years. She battled some health issues last year and injuries. And then this year, she surges into the spotlight, winning at Wimbledon, winning a gold medal, and now winning her fourth U.S. Open title. Now she is just three Grand Slam titles behind you. Yeah. What lies ahead for her? Probably three more Grand Slam titles. <laughs> good timing. And then maybe one more to beat Martina and I actually have have 18, which is ironic that we, you know, had a, a great rivalry. But I, I think if uh, Serena stays healthy, she stays fit, and she stays, you know, hungry for titles, she's going to be the one to win the titles the next two or three years. I don't see – I think she'll be, you know, tested with – Azarenka played a great, great match, you know, and Maria Sharapova. We've got some great girls coming up. But I think a fit uh, Serena Williams is unbeatable. And talking about Vika, she earlier this year we saw her win her first Grand Slam title at the Aussie Open, begin the year on a 26-match winning streak. She was two points away from winning this. I know, I know. What do you see ahead for her? Well, I felt bad because at 5-3, she maybe made one or two errors that normally, but she had to keep going for her shots if she was going to beat Serena. And then Serena came on, so it was really nothing that she did wrong to, to lose the match. But I see her, she can improve her serve a little bit more. But she has really progressed. I mean, she played great at the beginning of the year and then kind of laid off a little bit and, and I think tapered off. But now she's got it back. Well, in the end, Serena Williams is once again the queen of New York. For Chrissy Everett, I'm Prim Sarifa Pat. Context of white supremacy. Invest if you think the program is constructive. Uh, that segment, uh, it's on ESPN.com. You can go to their page and then just go to uh, their section on tennis the US Open and you can see that video if you want to check it out uh, the part in particular where the white woman Chris Everett when she's talking about how she thinks Serena Williams she'll be the dominant player uh, in women's tennis for the next two to three years and she's saying uh, the non-white female who was also in the interview when she said uh, Serena Williams just needs three more majors to pass you Chris Everett man you could see it on her face um, that's one of the ones where I said man you, you might need the video to really appreciate uh, all of the the splendor of trifling racist woman racist suspect I should say in this case um but yeah, I mean, you can just see it on her face, the disgust, like, oh, yeah, she probably will pass me. Uh, if she can stay fit, if she can stay healthy. I mean, you can just really see that for most white people, uh, they really are not interested uh, in seeing black people do well in anything, certainly not surpassing white people themselves or any other white people they just are not interested in that and they are not able to hide it very well uh, it was just it was obvious just her disgust 
uh, about all this. Now, I could be wrong. I would encourage folks, if you think this is, you know, of any interest, of any value, check it out for yourself. Come to your own conclusions. But I think it was pretty obvious uh, from this white woman how she felt about Serena Williams. I think if Serena Williams were a white person, there would be so much more genuine enthusiasm. Even if she was white and she was going to pass her uh, for number of championship victories, uh, I think she would have been exuberant. She would have been ecstatic and happy for her, encouraging. And I'm so proud to see her as a young woman uh, evolving the sport of tennis and uh, inspiring more young women to want to play tennis and to be athletes and to be the best they can be and and all that jazz and Title IX. And and I just just can't imagine her being as... hmm, I won't say despondent, but I just cannot imagine her being as flat uh, and having the lack of cheer that she had for Serena Williams. I just can't imagine that happening if Serena Williams was a white person. Probably applicable to every non-white person in the known universe. (laughs) How white people respond to them accomplishing something, doing something well, being quote-unquote successful under the context of white supremacy. Uh, I'm pretty sure you can you can observe that sort of response on a regular basis if you're paying attention. Anywho, I will double check, see if uh, we have anybody who has any thoughts, anything that they wanted to share. If you have anything, the number to dial 760-569-7676. And the code is 564943-POUND. Star 6, if you have anything you want to share. If you're on the talk shoe line, it is star 8. If you have anything you would like to share about our guest or anything just popped up uh, since we were last on that you want to share before we roll. Not doing the full three hours today. But uh, definitely will give time if anyone has anything that they would like to share. I know there were two things uh, that I was going to share. I did not uh, do so over the weekend because we were kind of pressing for time. Uh, one of them was around counter violence. I always feel uh, very self-conscious uh, bringing up counter violence, uh, period, uh, just because I... Uh, just being truthful, uh, I generally am concerned. Uh, I have seen the tendency that non-white people invariably uh, tend to move away from counterviolence directed at racist man, racist woman, racist child. Invariably, our frustrations and focus tend to shift to non-white people, victims of racism. So I have concerns whenever I bring up counterviolence. At any rate, it was brought up. Uh, one of our listeners uh, emailed, uh, and this is what he had to say. I did think it was pertinent information, so I'm sharing with that caveat. Uh, he wrote, I can't help but think about how much different black people view firearms than white people, for sure. Gun sales have skyrocketed since President Obama took office. Ammunition sales have increased also, and this is mostly white people. I live in Prince George County. I think that might be Virginia, but I'm not sure. And local police department is actively offering a $100 gift card to black people to turn in their guns. I recently saw a white man load a pickup bed with ammo 
and had a trailer loaded behind the pickup. I know a non-white black male that is very knowledgeable about firearms. As a matter of fact, he has a firing range and he is an instructor and has valuable information about licensing and permits, even ordering ammo online. And he makes his proposal for having him as a guest on the program. I'm in agreement. Uh, I will follow up and see if we can have this person as a guest on the program, a black person who uh, has his own gun range and information uh, about firearms. I definitely think that is constructive, something we would benefit from, non-white people, victims of racism. Uh, but I do have major concerns about uh, that tendency. I've just I've seen it too much. A lot of that is evident in the so-called civil rights movement in the 60s. Um, I just have major concerns. Uh, we really... If we, counter violence, if that's going to be something that's talked about more and more, I would definitely say vigilance needs to be exponentially increased to make sure that we all keep in mind the focus is supposed to be on the problem. White people, not other victims that we don't like, that are confused and may have done something that we didn't like, may have done a trillion incorrect things, a trillion things that helped out racist man, racist woman, not finding a way to find some non-white people that we can go stomp out, beat up, take some sort of punitive actions because we don't agree with what they've been doing or saying in response to racism, white supremacy. Real important, real important. I've seen that. I've seen that pretty much the entire time that I have been a little bit less confused about racism, white supremacy. That is something that cannot be overstated. We are not looking for reasons to fuss at other non-white people, to be in conflict with other non-white people. The problem is white people. That said, I will see if we can follow up and get the blackmail on the program. Uh, not even necessarily counter-violence, but just firearms, more information, getting non-white people comfortable thinking about that, maybe spending some time investigating to see if there is a uh, firing range near your house, your job, someplace that's close to you where you can go get some practice uh, and just thinking about that. We are in dangerous times. Election coming up this fall, President Obama wins. You already got a lot of white people talking about they're ready to uh, to get the shooting. If President Obama gets another term, they are they are ready to get raw. So I will follow up and see if we can make that happen. Uh, one other report I will read. I'll keep an eye out if anybody has anything they want to share. Uh, one other report. Uh, it was on my Facebook page. We were talking Saturday about the whole malarkey around uh, the presidential election. And as I, I saw some of those images uh, earlier today where it will be a black person and most of the time they'll get an older black person uh, someone who's over 40 over 50 they'll get an older black person and they'll be crying and just looking as though they are uh, over overjoyed emotional about the presidency President Obama specifically and I just I hate that it's really it's nauseating and when I'm angry about that I'm never angry at the non-white person I'm angry at white people for putting that image up there in the first place for confusing non-white people about what's happening on the plantation confusing them about President Obama victim of racism 
I get angry with white people, but I do get very tired of that image. And it had been a while since I had seen that. I hadn't really seen black people out crying and falling around on the ground uh, about President Obama. I hadn't really seen that since the 2008 election. So to be seeing those images again is pretty... Uh, it's nauseating, but again, to be expected, that's racist man, racist woman at their best. Uh, one of our listeners, investors, they sent me a post where uh, former governor of Minnesota, Jesse Ventura, uh, he was confirming what I was, the analogy that I was drawing uh, on Saturday between politics, professional wrestling. Uh, I'll read a little bit of this report and then I'll, I'll, I'll get back see if anybody has any thoughts to share if not we can get ready to wrap up uh, Mr. Ventura uh, in this uh, report it's on Chuck Palanui I don't even know what that is I'm not even going to try I'll put it in the chat room so you can check it out if you're interested uh, but he did this interview uh, this is from February 22nd 2010 the title of the report is Politics in America is Identical to Pro Wrestling I'll admit it, I was intimidated. I usually never am, but I was. Standing before former governor of Minnesota, Jesse Ventura, I was struck by the thrill of being in the presence of an actor who was not only an icon for a boy of 13 with his roles in Predator and The Running Man, but he was also gregarious and seemed genuinely excited to talk about anything. After speaking with him, you realize he's imbued with the ability to navigate politics, but still have a firm grasp on common sense. And I still wonder if that's what voters saw in this straight-talking intellectual. I was there ostensibly to talk about his book, which is now out in paperback, Don't Start the Revolution Without Me, or even his new show on True TV that debuted this season called Conspiracy Theory. But it didn't go to plan. The interview became a conversation between two people. It was something as an interviewer you strive for like a jogger chasing a runner's high. I expect to be tolerated, to have my questions answered with as minimal exposition as possible. But Jesse was genuinely excited to chat and he treated every question as a chance to expound on subjects he knows a lot about. From how he dealt with death threats as a governor, to religion in his state, to the conversation he had with Fidel Castro while he was in Cuba about the Kennedy assassination, there was no denying Ventura had seen and experienced more in his time in office than a lot of the lily-white suits that purport to have our best interests at heart could ever hope to put on their resume. Jesse Ventura deserves to have a platform where he could just riff because I would bet that even though we spoke for only an hour he could easily be one of the more interesting pundits to ever have their own show. I think if there was a steel cage match between Jesse Ventura and Glenn Beck the good money would be on Jesse. The man could do it with his hands or his mouth. He seems just that lethal. I will not read the full article uh, or interview that they had. Uh, it's transcribed here. Uh, I'll share a few uh, tidbits <laughs> from this. Uh, actually, I want to scroll through to just get to the wrestling portion of it because this actually is, is a lot longer 
than uh, than I anticipated. Okay, I'm skipping down so we can just do the wrestling uh, portion of the interview. Ventura says, What you had was a banana congress made up of Democrats in control who were spineless pukes. They had no guts, no courage. I hated the Democrats when they came back and said, Well, we can't get out of Iraq because we can't override Bush's veto. They didn't have to. They controlled the money. All you have to do is deny the money and we could have been out of Iraq. Simple. Have some courage. The 2006 election gave them a mandate. The 2006 election, the people of America said, we want out of Iraq. Did Democrats do anything? No. In fact, they even gutted the 14th Amendment again and gave Bush the power to wiretap us, read our emails, and all that. So tell me they are different, that they are not together on the whole thing. I don't buy it, and I'm the third party guy. That's why I don't lie, and I'll give you the best example. Politics in America is identical to pro wrestling. In front of the crowd, in front of TV, they pretend to hate each other. They pretend like they are big adversaries, and that's the sell job they do to us, the citizens. Just like pro wrestling, my job was to go out and piss everybody off so bad they would pay their hard-earned money to go out and see me get my butt kicked. Well, the point is, we are all friends in the locker room. We all work together. It's entertainment. We put on a show and this is no different. They are putting on a show because behind the scenes they are all friends. They go out to dinner together and cut their deals together. It's a show. That's what I believe. I taught a Harvard I taught at Harvard in 2004. Do you know what one of my classes was? How pro wrestling prepares you for politics. I was actually going to stop when he said he taught at Harvard because I didn't know that, but I mean, I don't even know what to say about, <laughs> about the system of racism. You can be a white person, and I'm looking at the photo that I have of Jesse Ventura right now. He's wearing a pink sports jacket with a feather shawl. Uh, some glamour shot sunglasses, red. He's got some sort of bandana on his head. He's wearing a silver bow tie. Uh, I mean, totally outlandish. This was a picture when he was with uh, professional wrestling, right? So, Navy SEAL, professional wrestler, former governor, television show host, actor. <laughs> I mean, no. <laughs> and 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 professor at Harvard. I mean, it's just like wow. You can be a white person. <laughs> it's no limits, man. It is no limits. Anyway, he continues. Everybody at Harvard chuckled until they sat in on my class, and they left one day and went, "My God, he's right." And I'll tell you how. Here's my class. First of all. Pro wrestling prepares you for, for politics that in pro wrestling, you have to sell yourself. You have to sell yourself so people will pay money to come see you. What's different than going out to get a vote? Now you sell yourself to get their vote. 
rather than the money, although money is in there too with our system. Alright, that prepares you. Second thing, yes, wrestling is all planned, but there are no rehearsals. When you go to the ring, it's all ad-lib. And Murphy's Law always happens. Anything that can go wrong, will. So you have to be able to think quickly on your feet. You have to be able to take situations and continue with the match. Make it look like no mistake happened and everything is hunky-dory out here. So you have to think on your feet. Perform to a live audience. Third, you get very comfortable in front of a TV camera and comfortable talking. Because the matches are not sold by what happens in the ring, they are sold at the microphone. For example, Denver was one of my favorite towns because I would insult them and call them a bunch of Denver drugstore cowboys. I said, you are a bunch of phonies. And here I am with bleached blonde hair, six earrings, and I'm insulting the drugstore cowboys of Denver. I would get to Denver and I would be wrestling my opponent and 10 minutes would go by and we haven't even touched each other because I would be working the crowd. They'd be booing and I'd be posing. Before the match started, I'd take out every earring slowly, one at a time, and the bell's already rung and I'm just killing time, doing it as easy as possible before you get to the action. So you sell yourself, the same as a politician. You have to be able to talk and communicate on a microphone. So it comes natural. Finally, and probably the biggest, is that in pro wrestling, you portray a character that you may be nothing like. Jesse the Body Ventura that you see on TV may be nothing like what I am in private. Nothing. I mean, I'm on TV telling people all the women I got while I've been married to my wife for 33 years. There are no other women. But when I'm wrestling, I'm telling people, yeah, I hung out with Erica Kane last week, blah, blah, blah. And the same holds true for politicians. But the politicians portray themselves as the one thing excuse me, but the politicians portray themselves as one thing to you when in reality they may be nothing like the person they portray to you in public, which is just like wrestling. Case in point, Mark Foley, he's a guy working on all the laws for child molestation, all the while he's emailing the pages trying to seduce them. Now that's your classic example of somebody who is not what he has portrayed himself to be in public. I think I will stop there. Although he does go on to give some interesting tidbits about this uh, hypocrisy and so-called homosexual activity. You can continue reading it for yourself if you are so inclined. I'm putting it in the uh, chat room and it is on my Facebook page already. Uh, see here, I'm putting it in the chat room now for the folks who are listening in at TalkShoe. Pick it up. Uh, there you go. And it's already on my Facebook page. It was posted, uh, let's see, this is uh, KP Mensah. Put it on my Facebook page. It should be uh, right up near the top. 
uh, at least for right now, if you're on Monday. It should be right up near the top if you want to check out the, the rest of the report. As I said, the so-called homosexual activity is quite interesting if you want to keep keep reading where I left off at. But yeah, that's that's what I think in my mind. You know, when I see black people out crying on television, either way, and it, I, I look at both of that, it's the same thing. It's two sides of the same coin. The black people that are emotional and just overjoyed that President Obama is in the White House and think this is the greatest thing that could have ever happened to black people, the people that are on that side, and the black people, non-white people, who are furious with President Obama. Can't stand him, can't stand Michelle Obama, think they've messed everything up. Uh, they've just been used to, quote-unquote, recolonize Africa and, and send out all these drone attacks and they don't like uh, the health care package. Whatever their gripes are, all of it, I look at it as the same thing you have been confused there's no way that this victim of racism can be in charge of anything you're watching wrestling and thinking Hulk Hogan is uh, world champ or whatever the case may be or The Rock or whoever you watch you, you, you have been confused watching the wrestling you are thinking this is real <sighs> don't drink the Kool-Aid man don't drink the Kool-Aid hopefully we can get more non-white people out there with a better grasp of all this again that report that i saw this weekend uh young black male in north carolina going to jail for tweeting that he would like to see president obama assassinated uh just in my view despicable and any non-white person any black person we really should be making every effort that we can to see that uh at least non-white people they rear around we do make an effort for them to be less confused not saying you have to go out and try to discourage anyone from voting not saying you have to encourage them to vote just get the wheels thinking do you really think president obama whether you're for him or against him do you really think he doesn't have to answer the white people you really think he can go do whatever he want whatever he wants send these drone planes this place or the health care package do you really think president obama he can do whatever he, he can make all his own decisions and he doesn't have to answer to any white people counterviolence same thing i said early my concerns about the counterviolence invariably we find a way to find a black person that we want to go and put hands on really got to work against that that tendency especially as 2012 concludes we get closer to the election I will stop there. I assume everybody is good. No uh, comments. Our guest, uh, Miss Grenfell, she did email me already the information for the indigenous writers in Australia, non-white people. So if anyone listening, if you're interested, if that's something you would like to check out, non-white authors in Australia writing about racism, she said. If you'd like to check out that material, I can forward it. I will follow up and see if we can get some of these uh, people on the program. I think it would be great to hear from more non-white people in Australia. I think we've only heard from one non-white person in Australia thus far. Uh, quite a few white people, but only one non-white person. So I'll follow up and see if we can make that happen. Also, remind folks, Australia's Serena Williams, uh, Dr. Ann Patel Gray, our single non-white person who's been a guest from Australia, she was saying... I didn't get this confirmed. I asked some of the other white people that we've had on about it, and they said they didn't, they hadn't heard anything about it. But Dr. Ann Patel Gray, she said that she has heard white people be very trifling, very rude, uh, 
uh, to Serena Williams and Venus Williams when they had been in Australia for the Australian Open. Serena Williams, I think she's won the Australian Open like four or five times. And she, uh, Dr. Ann Patel Gray, she was saying that they've been very rude, uh, calling them names and, you know, showing the same disrespect, disregard that white people do uh, around the world. Uh, Just throwing that out there as well for folks to keep in mind. World system of racism. You are not going to escape. A few wrinkles. uh, Things may change depending on where you happen to be geographically. But the overall foundation abuse terrorism against non-white people in effect wherever you happen to be on the planet unfortunately uh we will be back as i said just check you can either check the facebook page my face uh, facebook page is the problem is white people facebook.com the problem is white people you can check the uh cows group on facebook um i generally post all of the programs there so if you want to be updated when the next content is going to be coming out you can check the cows facebook group either one uh you can also just check the talk to you page the new talk to you page the id is one two two six eight nine one two two six eight nine uh, if you want to see any of the archives for the older programs again itunes has the archives you can just do a search if you open up your itunes Uh, Do a search when you uh, open the iTunes store. Go to the search bar in the upper right corner of your iTunes application. Just do a search. You can search for white supremacy. You can search for racism. You can search for Neely Fuller. You can search for uh, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. Any of the guests that have been on the program, you can just do that search. And you should see the icons for the cows pop up. Uh, You can take the one for Frederick Germain Carter, the black male being hung. That one, I think, should have 300 plus of the programs in the archives. Uh, there's also the on icons. There's uh, two different feeds. The other one just has the cows written in red letters. You can click that one. And I think it has uh, almost the first 500 programs of the cows uh, in the archives on iTunes. You can download it. You can listen on iTunes. If you have any problems, any difficulties accessing a program uh, from the archives, shoot me an email until justice at gmail.com. Uh, you can Facebook me too, but uh, Facebook, uh, I could miss it easily. Uh, just letting folks know if it's something that you really want me to see. Uh, if someone, if it's something that you really want me to see, I would encourage emailing because the Facebook people post things and it's just, it's very easy that I could miss it if you put it on Facebook. So if it's a guest suggestion, um, yeah, if it's anything you really want Gus to pick out or something you want me to share on the program, then I would encourage email until justice at gmail.com. Cool. We will be back on, um, well, the next scheduled program is Friday. We might be back before then. Uh, Just check the page for the update to see if we uh, will be doing some work before Friday. Very likely. But at minimum, definitely Friday, Nat Turner Diaries will be doing uh, Disc 4. Nat Turner Diaries, we will be at the conclusion of Friday's broadcast, will be at the halfway point. So tune in. Uh, I'm definitely enjoying reading Dr. William Pierce. Uh, his work, uh, even the program uh, yesterday reminded me a bit of Dr. Uh, Pierce's book. Uh, just 
learning more about white people, even even uh, books that I, I think that book is intended for less powerful white people, even still good to be informed. And I will say again, do not think that these less uh, less powerful white people are not dangerous to you if you are a non white person. That would be a monumental error. Less powerful white people have killed a lot of non-white people over the years, harmed a lot of non-white people, mistreated a lot of non-white people. Even if they are less powerful, they are white, and I suspect they have access to more powerful white people. Don't drop your guard just because you don't think this is Bill Gates in front of you. Don't drop your guard. One of the worst things you could possibly do. Right on. Justice's email, or excuse me, her uh, blog, justdojusticetoday.blogspot.com. Justdojusticetoday.blogspot.com. We will be back later in the week. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Replace white supremacy with justice as soon as possible. Uh, I guess I will do the prayer uh, since we have a uh, participation. What would I, what would I request? What would I ask from the Creator? Number one: increased suspicion of white people. I will just focus right there in my request, and then we can wrap up. Uh, and I, I really, I should not be laughing because I cannot emphasize that is a huge part of why we have not solved this problem. I see tons of non-white people who talk about racism. They write, publish about racism, have done films about racism. They spend a huge chunk of their time and energy, their currency, addressing the problem of racism, white supremacy. But there will be one or five or 10 white people that they don't think are racist. And invariably, what I have seen, generally without exception, is that once you have made space for one white person who is not racist, there will be others. It is invariable. You can bet the farm on that. Once you've located one, there will be others. The minimum any non-white person out there if you listen to this program if you're serious about replacing white supremacy with justice and neutralizing racist man, racist woman racist child no exceptions every white person I don't care how long you've known them how many books they've written how many lectures they've given if they are white, you should at minimum, at minimum, suspect that they probably are racist. At minimum, no exceptions. I have seen this consistently erode the work of non-white people who were sincere in their efforts to replace white supremacy with justice but their efforts were compromised, really contaminated as a result of thinking it's not all white people. Becky is all right. 
Jonathan is okay. Steve is all right. Kate Grenville, hey, she's written four books all about the horrors and the way that we massacred non-white people in Australia. It's super easy for a white person to do any of that and still practice racism. It's what they do best. Suspicion. Suspicion. If I had to request one thing. Accurate understanding of what it means to be a white person. If our recent existence on this planet has taught us nothing else. Non-white people victims of racism. It should be. White people, racism, synonyms, synonyms. We will be back later in the week. Context of white supremacy signing out. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Thanks for listening. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.